So, welcome to the first large group of the fall 2018 semester. Yay! All right, cool. So, today we're going to be looking at Matthew 6. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 6. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 24. It's Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Okay. Is everyone there? Yes? Okay. All right, I'll just go ahead and read it. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, so if you're taking notes, I'm just going to give you the three main points I'm talking about today. They come right out of uh, this passage. Uh, First point, where is your treasure? Okay, where is your treasure? And then I'm going to be talking about how are your eyes? How are your eyes? And then the last point I want to make is who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Okay, so if you're taking notes, those are the three main points, and you can just follow along as you listen. So I want to start by giving two examples. One of the most famous treasures in history that's been discovered is that of King Tutankhamun of ancient Egypt, King Tut. Among the items are a solid gold coffin, face mask, thrones, archery bows, trumpets, a lotus chalice, food, wine, sandals, and fresh linen underwear. Various sources value it, you know, in different ways. Some say it's worth millions of dollars, it's priceless, it's worth billions of dollars. Um, But yes, what we know is that he was buried with all of these things in his tomb. Another example I want to bring up is this woman named Sylvia Bloom. Have you ever heard of Sylvia Bloom? Uh, She made news uh, several years ago, but she was a legal secretary uh, that built her wealth very quietly. And it was discovered at her death that she had $8.2 million saved up, but she had kept it a secret from her family. Could you imagine if your spouse had millions of dollars locked up and you're toiling away at work, working towards your retirement, and she had this money saved up, he had this money saved up this whole time, and kept it a secret from you? That would be horrible, right? Uh, So I point out these examples because uh, it seems like people, and this isn't the only isolated case. There are I mean, it's not like a super common thing, but it happens. People often die with a lot of possessions or a lot of wealth that they never end up using. I mean, yeah, sometimes they do, you know, write wills and it gets sent to wherever, but a lot of times it just gets, it just sits there for no good reason. And, um, you know, but it, it kind of raises the question, right? It, make, it, can't, it makes you wonder, you can't help but wonder, what would cause someone to do this? Why would you amass all this wealth only for it to sit there 
and you never even enjoy it, right? Now, the Egyptians did this because of their belief that they could take their things into the afterlife, okay? Um, Now, this raises the question, does God ask at the judgment day how much money you made? Is life a game of numbers to see who had the highest number in their bank account uh, at the time of one's death? Or the number of possessions that you held at the time of your death? Whatever they were thinking, it shows some sort of weird, like, habitual selfishness and a sort of unsettling act. Like, what would cause someone to do this? Maybe this is a display of one's heart. Just like in the text, it tells us in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? Where is your heart and where is your treasure? What are you living for? Now, these are the questions I want to get at today. Where is your treasure? Now, this is important because a good indicator of where our hearts are is how you spend your money, is where your treasured items are. Do you believe in God who is the source of all blessing? or do, I mean, do you tithe or are you tight-fisted? Right? Do you give offering or do you just hoard everything that you make? These are some questions that might help you to kind of discern where your heart is. Have anyone, has anyone here uh, tracked their finances? Are you guys like good with budgeting and things like that? Trying to? Yeah, more or less? Okay, so that's something I was like kind of into and I was always like tracking my finances just to see, you know, trying to be a good steward of my money, you know? And uh, if you haven't tried this, I recommend you try this. This will really reveal where your heart is because it's so easy to just spend things in the moment and then not realize where it ends up. But when you look at your monthly budget at the end of the month, you're like, oh my goodness, I spent this much on french fries, you know? <laughs> like the most random things. It reveals something if you've never done this before. For me, some of you know I'm a snacker. Any snackers in here? Yeah, everyone <laughs> but one. It's okay. Gene, you're the healthy one. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I find that I, I, I spend a, an embarrassing amount, not super embarrassing, but an embar- I don't want to share you, with you how much I spend on ice cream. Aaron knows. <laughs> I, I regularly get ice cream. Like That's my go-to like, comfort thing. I'll be walking down the street and I'll just be like, I want ice cream. So I'll just go to the Pony Jump. It's so easy. Pony Jump card, ka-ching, done. Ice cream at your fingertips, right? And for me, that's one of those things I found out after doing this. I was like, oh my gosh, I spend a good amount on ice cream. If I just cut that out and put that in savings, I could, I could you know, have something, you know? Um, another thing is you could very well substitute treasure in this verse with time. Because we all know time is money, right? We, we, we use the word spend because it's something that we, like, you know, spend. Not, not so willingly, but it's something we give in exchange for something, right? Like time. You spend time and you spend money. You can very easily say, um, uh, where your time is, there your heart is also. Okay? Now, what do you spend your time doing? Do you spend your time studying? playing video games, social media, recreation, work. Where is your time? There your heart will be also. College students, you may be thinking, later I'll start giving 
Later, I'll start serving more after I've graduated. I know, I'm sure that's all crossed your minds. It did to me as well when I was, in, when I was your age many eons ago. Uh, but it's not how it works. If you don't start these habits now, it won't get any easier, okay? I mean, if you really have it in your heart to, to serve, if you really have it in your heart to give, to be a generous serving person, then you got to start that now because later, other things will creep in and they will demand even more of your time, okay? So don't look back at your life with regret, you don't want to look back on your life and think, oh man, I, I really love the Lord, but I wish, I wish I would have done something about it to show him, right? Uh, don't let your life pass you by without that happening. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that money is bad, like all money is bad and spending any of your time outside of church and church events is a bad thing. You're bad, right? If you're not here, I'm taking a, t- you know, no, none of that. If anything, we believe that God is not only in otherworldly God. He's spiritual, but he's also very concerned with how we spend our lives and our time here on earth, right? Uh, He is concerned with how we use our talents, our giftings, how we contribute to society. God has created each and every single one of us with talents and gifts, propensities, uh, ways in which that we can be a light and a blessing in the world, but we have to be discerning about this, right? These are the two kind of extremes that we have to balance. Do we just like go one extreme and say, ah, forget money and everything. I'm just going to go live on the streets and help everybody. If you did that, uh, you would become the poor that needs help, right? And then if you just, you know, go all out the other way, I mean, we know the, the pitfalls of that. I mean, we'll be exploring that today, but um, that's not what you want to do. You have to be discerning in all this. Now, really what we're getting at here with this verse is that simply things fall apart, Right? Things that we have and own and we chase, these things will all fail us. The, the pursuit of the, these things for the sake of those things is futile because in the end, all of these things will perish. And even if they don't perish and they make it with you to your deathbed, it will be like King Tut. You will just, it'll just sit there for someone else to take and discover and you won't be able to take it with you. Now think about the language that Jesus uses here. He says, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. No matter how well you take care of your things, these things will all perish. Your Gucci bags and your nice cars, hold up, uh, you guys are college students, who am I kidding? Uh, your, what do you guys have? <laughs> you guys don't have cars and, and bags, but uh, what, do you, what do you have? IPad. Your iPads, okay, that's probably your most valuable thing, but uh, <laughs> I got a story later I'll tell you but what my most valuable thing was, okay? It's funny, but um, yeah, you know, backpacks, iPads, clothing, I mean, we, we know these things all, your clothes will get holes. You know, when you go shopping, all right, you go shopping, you get on the bus, you, you take the subway, you get out and you walk out the turnstiles, you go to the Uniqlo, you walk in, you see all these new clothing, blah, 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 outlet, outfits and whatnot. You walk in and you're like, okay, uh, what am I going to buy? I'm going to buy this shirt because it looks, hold on, let me pull out my phone. Uh, men's fashion fall 2018, shirts, what should I buy? Okay, huh, I like this design. I'm going to get this, buy it. I go all the way back home, I wear it. The next time after washing it, I'm like, okay, I like this shirt. Okay, so I, I wash it, I put it in the, in the dryer, and then, you know, I fold it up. A week later it passes, I put it on again, and then only to find that there is an, a, a hole in the shirt because of a moth. Okay? <laughs> all that, I mean, you know, all that, everyone, I got people crying here. <laughs> all of that effort 
for a shirt that you really like, which is not a bad thing, right? But it fades. How easily a, a stinking moth, this little creature, will just eat up a hole in your shirt and suddenly it's meh. Can't even sell it for the same value, you know? Moth and rust destroy. All the more so in Korea. I feel like the fashion here changes so fast that if you bought clothes for longevity, it wouldn't even be worthwhile because it's out of fashion, right? That, that's why uh, they, they use such cheap material, like Uniqlo. I love Uniqlo, by the way. I'm not knocking on them because like, that's the only place I can go to and, and buy clothes and it fits me uh, regularly, you know? <laughs> I loved it when I came to Korea. Um, I was like, man, there's clothes that, that fits me. I don't have to like search for it, you know? <laughs> like go out of state to find a pair of pants that fit me. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I love their jeans, but man, it's like it, it fades within a couple years uh, because it's almost accepted like, oh, that cut of jean is not going to be fashionable in a few years, and you just toss it anyway. Thieves break in and steal. Anyone here been robbed? No? Good. Hope, I pray that that never happens. Oh, okay, yeah. All right. Uh, I have. I was living in a house off campus my sophomore year of college, and it was kind of near a bad area. And, you know, robberies happened sometimes. It wasn't like a frequent thing, but it happened. And, you know, it was back in my, like, sinful backslidden days, too. So, like, you know, we had these house parties, and, like, all these strangers would come in and, like, drink beer, and then um, they would see. I guess one of them happened to come in and scout out our house and know how to get in, see what to steal, right? And, you know, all these people are drinking and whatnot, so nobody's, like, in their right minds. But one of these days, it happened. We got robbed, and they left no sign of breaking in. Um, they took, like, I think they took a TV, and, yeah, I think so, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, it's not like they saw, it's not like we were there and they, like, ran off with it. It's like they knew when we weren't there and they, they went and got it, you know? <laughs> um, you know, some random valuables. Okay, and, and the most ex expensive thing that I owned was a pocket knife. Uh, called a Leatherman, which is like an $80 pocket knife, but they somehow knew to get that. They didn't even take my computer, you know? <laughs> that was the most valuable thing I had, apparently, that they stole. Um, my, one of my roommates, he got his six-pack of beer stolen, and he was so angry about that. <laughs> like, like, so they're like, they, they still stole our TV. It's like, oh, man, they took your six-pack of beer. <laughs> <laughs> like, went Hulk after that, you know? Yeah, things get stolen. Things fall apart, there's rust, moth. Where is your treasure? Is it in your job security? Even these things can change. Economic conditions can change. Doctors might be uh, venerated one you know, generation and the next it might not be so much, right? Although, you know, they make good money generally, but you know, things can change, right? Our earthly treasures are so impermanent, so transient. So, here we have Jesus telling us to spend on eternal things. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Your life on earth is such a short time. I mean, when you're sitting in class and you're waiting for the clock to tick, it feels like an eternity, right? Seems like that second hand is going backwards sometimes, <laughs> right? But um, yeah, your life on earth is, is so fast. James 4, verse 14 says, Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Jesus also says in Matthew 16, verse 26, 
What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What good are your treasures in the scope of eternity? What good is that degree? What good are all these things that you strive for in the scope of eternity? Look at King Tut. He didn't take any of those things with him. He doesn't have his death mask. We've got it in the British Museum or wherever it's housed, you know? It's stayed for someone else to find. How sad for him. Where is your treasure? What do your spending habits say about your heart, both time and money? Next point, if you look here, is how are your eyes? So from verse 22, it says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I like, kind of memorized a lot of Matthew and, and a lot of Matthew 6. Actually, the next section is like one of my favorite uh, parts of the Bible. But I've read this so many times, I didn't really understand what this metaphor meant until like this week when I like <laughs> had to <laughs> prep the sermon. <laughs> but um, it's really interesting, this metaphor that Jesus uses. Um, I'll explain that in a, in a bit, but let me, let me give you a, a, an illustration first. So uh, I have this house that I live in. It's a really old house. It's like a house from maybe the 50s in Korea. It's, some of you have seen it, right? Who, who here has been inside my house? Okay, everyone almost. You'll, you'll come over sometime. I'm moving out soon, but, but I'll try to get you over sometime. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's all wooden, right? It's like wooded floor, wooden panel, wooden ceiling. Everything's wood, like dark mahogany wood. And, you know, it takes a good, a good amount of light to make it feel lit in there, uh, to make it feel bright. And naturally, since everything is wood, right? And one day, the light, light bulb went out. And so, you know, naturally, I went to change it. And when I went to change it, I noticed, oh, uh, there are actually two sockets for the light bulb, not just one. So I decided to add another one in just to see what would happen. And lo and behold, Adding that extra light bulb made it so much brighter. I could see so much more in the room. I could see so much more detail. I could see these angles I didn't know existed in my house, right? <laughs> There's like a dusty spot I didn't realize was there until, you know, I, I added another light bulb. Uh, so lamps, light bulbs, whatever, lights, uh, help us to see, obviously. <laughs> Welcome to Emmaus. You learn obvious things. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this metaphor that Jesus uses is very simple if you, if you just kind of, you know, are willing to, to wrestle with it. It says, if you have good eyes, you can perceive clearly what the world around you is like. Right? You have good eyes, you can see, obviously. You get more information about color, shape, sizes, angles, spatial information. Likewise, when you have a lamp that is bright, you can illuminate a room. You can see the room more clearly. You can get more truthful information for your eyes. So if your eyes are good, you'd be full of light. Okay, what does that mean? It means that if you're able to see more clearly, you are able to see the truth more clearly. You can see the full picture more clearly. What is that truth? Well, it's so easy to just get clouded by darkness and to start chasing money in this context, right? So that truth, you have to constantly remind yourself, wipe your eyes 
wipe, wipe. Remind yourself that the truth is that God is better. The truth is one master. There's one master, and it's God. Now, darkness, let me talk about this for a minute. Darkness is an interesting thing. It's strange, but we know that darkness isn't a thing. It's actually the absence of light. Okay? But the absence of light, this darkness, can actually cause a lot of confusion. So you ever go into like a scary hallway or that's like dimly lit? I don't know why you would go into a scary hallway that's dimly lit, but, but imagine like maybe in your house you have a, a hallway that doesn't, has a light that doesn't work. Or you have to walk across a room where the light switches across the room, right? That's how it is in my house. I have to walk up my stairs and then open the door, that loud <laughs> door, and then in the darkness I have to walk with my hands groping like this, uh, make sure there's no laundry hanger uh, standing in my way, there, make sure there's nothing in the way of my face that could poke me or something, and then grope my way to the light switch and then click, oh, okay, now I can walk normally. Okay, why do we do that? Because you don't know what's there. You just don't know. Now, it's a simple thing as there not being light, but it can introduce so much anxiety, fear, doubt about what is true, okay? Now, darkness is, it doesn't just cause us to not see. Darkness actually distorts our reality, okay? And let me, let me expound on this a bit. BBC, they did this experiment. You guys know BBC, right, the news outlet? Um, they did this experiment where they brought in six participants and they placed them in darkness, complete darkness and silence for 48 minutes, or hours, 48 hours, two days straight. No light, no one else in there with them. Now, the researchers were able to see what they did because they had infrared cameras, and so they were able to see in the darkness what they were doing. They were able to communicate with them um, but they like minimized it, right? So it, if only they needed to, they would speak into the intercom. And every time they spoke into the intercom, they, the, the participants would be like, ah, yeah, you know? And, uh, but what they found was that within minutes, they started acting very strangely, really strangely. And then within hours, within a day, I think around 30, 30 hours later, they started to like hallucinate. Uh, they say they report seeing uh, and hearing snakes, oysters, uh, tiny cars and zebras. So one of the women thought that her blanket was wet when it wasn't. That was like minutes into the <laughs> experiment. Um, after the 48 hours, they did a series of tests. They had actually done some pretests before the experiments to have a baseline, right? And so th what they found was that uh, their cognitive functions decreased significantly. Uh, one participant's memory capacity decreased by 36%. Yeah. And, and one of them reportedly said it was as bad as anything Hitler had ever done to any of his victims. Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but you get the point. Darkness causes us to do and perceive funny things that aren't there. It's not just an absence of light. Now, you can check this out on YouTube. It's called, uh, I forget what it's called. But anyway, just, just look it up. It's, it's easy to find. It's really interesting. So darkness, it doesn't just prevent us from seeing the truth. It literally distorts our reality. Okay? Like when we grope in front of us when we walk across a dark room, or like the participants in the experiment, I think this is why 
Jesus says in verse 23, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I think that's what he means by that. If you're not seeing clearly, that little bit of untruth, that little bit of lie, that little white lie, that little bit of lies, is going to start beginning to distort your reality. Okay? Think about how easy it is to fall into delusions. I've seen so many people on fire for God at retreats. I'm 32 years old now, so I've lived quite a while. And uh, I've been to lots of retreats. You know, I grew up in the church. I've seen people go on fire for God and fall away within years, you know? And it's always sad to see, but it happens. You know, people you thought would be like missionaries to the ends of the earth, and they're just not living uh, that life. So what you see here is a playing out of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Uh, you guys know the parable of the sower, the sower sows seeds, and some of them fall on the nice soil, some of them fall on rocky ground, some of them the birds come and eat them up, right? You can look at it later. But uh, verse 22 of it, it says, The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus calls wealth here deceitful. It's not just that it's bad, and it's not bad in and of itself, but wealth has a tendency to be deceitful, to play tricks on our minds. Now think about how that applies to you. You may be able to tell people that you're called into whatever field you're studying. You may even have yourself convinced. I'm not trying to like tell you all to like quit school, okay? I'm, I'm not trying to get angry phone calls from your parents or anything. Um, but, you know, like that happens, right? Sometimes we just get this idea like, okay, I think I like this. I'm going to go for it. And everyone around you is like, yeah, yeah, you should do it. Like your mentors are like, yeah, great. And you start building your entire life around this idea that I think I'm going to be a doctor. I say that because no one here is studying that. <laughs> yeah, but like, I think I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> so you hear all this encouragement by your friends and family, who, by the way, have something to gain by your success, right? And you keep listening to it. You tell yourself that this is God calling you. When's the last time you checked yourself? Now, again, I'm not saying like, go and sell everything and be like John the Baptist or anything like that right now or whatever, but When's the last time you really asked yourself, like, God, what is it, what is your will? Like, did I ever ask you? You know? It's, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about money. It's about where your heart is. So again, to, to conclude this part, how are your eyes? How are your eyes? Are you able to see what is clear? Do you need a, a nice um, wiping of your, your lenses? How are your eyes? Now, the last point I want to make, who is your Lord? Let's look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. It's particularly interesting that some translations of the Bible use the word mammon instead of money in this verse, in verse 24. Mammon, if you don't know, is a personification of money and is often used to portray money as an idol or a god. 
okay? So in some translations, it would say something like, you cannot serve both God and mammon. That, that's Jesus' words. Actually, in, even in the NIV here, the, the money is capitalized, okay? So it's not just money. It's, it's talking about that, like, idolatry form of money. So what, what's Jesus doing in saying this? He could have easily just said money. Why does he use the word mammon? Well, I think what he's doing is he's, he's drawing a line here saying, you cannot serve money and it cannot take the place of God because if it does, at that moment, it becomes an idol. It becomes God. It essentially is mammon. You either serve God or you don't. That's the general question. Do you serve God or not? Now, I think Jesus points out mammon specifically here as an example because it's an easy substitute. When push comes to shove, when push comes to shove a lot of times it's money that's at the center of our hearts for most people. It becomes clear which is your God. Now again, I'm not saying that money is all bad. We need money to live. Okay? We, you know, money, even the pursuit of money is not a bad thing. Okay? It, it, to, to be a man and to uh, want to support your family, even to be a woman to support your family, that's a good thing. That's a sacrifice, sacrificial thing. But all throughout the Bible, people use money. Solomon had wealth. Paul took up collections for the church and spoke very frankly about it. Jesus paid taxes. Jesus paid taxes. You guys remember that story where uh, they, they go and say, oh, we got to pay taxes. And, and they're like, um, he's like, whose picture do you see on the coin? Is and they're like, Caesar. It's like, give to Caesar what is Caesar. So, so then he goes fishing and, and finds a coin supernaturally and says, here's my taxes. <laughs> right? God is, you know, Jesus is God over everything and he's able to do that. But even still, Jesus uses money. It's not like he was like, oh, get that coin away from me, you know? Uh, it says that all the silver and gold are his. Money isn't evil, okay? But the Bible does say that the love of money is evil. The love of money is evil. We should desire wealth and seek to use it, but it should never take the place of God. And we shouldn't serve it either. You serve your idols. You serve your God. Francis Bacon is known for saying, money is a great servant but a bad master. Money is a great servant but a bad master. Do not be mastered by money. Use it. Use lots of it. Get it. Great. But don't serve it. It's a horrible master. Earlier, I talked about how Darkness can, uh, sorry, distort our realities. Isn't that so true of money? You can see it in the most, you can see it most clearly in those who are addicted to gambling. So uh, gambling is probably the easiest and quickest way to, to financial ruin. You ever see someone who's addicted to gambling? Uh, you don't have to answer that if you know someone. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it's scary how quickly it can just like take control of your mind. Uh, when I was in college, I played a lot of poker. Around that time, poker was like pretty popular. Like it was being shown on ESPN. People were playing Texas Hold'em. Like Friday nights, people would go in and guys would you know have poker nights. And I, I started to get into it. Uh, at first, it was just kind of casual. And thankfully, I didn't get like super deep into it. But it, man, I did flirt with it, uh, and it got a little bit crazy. And I and I can experience. Uh, I can explain this to you firsthand how what it was like. So this is right around when like. PayPal, you know PayPal. PayPal just like came around, um, and and it, you know you were able to use PayPal to to deposit money into like your account. And you know sometimes I would I would make out with a little bit of money, and sometimes and a lot of times I would just lose. But there's this like 
crazy instinctual thing where you're just like, oh, I know I can just get this back. I can get this back. If I lose it, I'll just get it back. 20 bucks. Okay, cool. Play with that for a few hours. Great. Uh, you play, play with it. You go up and down, up and down. You lose it. And then, okay, another 20. And then another 20. And then another 20. And another 20. And, and so, and before I knew it, before I kind of came to my senses, I had put in, I'm kind of embarrassed to share this, but like, I put in like something like 800 bucks, like within a very short time period. And it just, I realized then, I was like, whoa, this is really dangerous. I have to stop this right now. Um, but yeah, kids, don't gamble. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I could see that darkness was, was clouding my truth, was clouding my judgment, and how great was that darkness? My mind was so clouded. It's so easy to see and judge how wrong it is with something like gambling, okay? But, you know, because it's so destructive and addictive. But, but let's take something maybe that's a little less stigmatized. I mean, gambling is very clearly destructive, but, but what about like careers and hobbies, okay? Now again, these are good things, but when we hold on to them and, it, and, it, and they hold on to us so tightly that it rules us, you know, that, that's dangerous. That is idolatry if it takes the place of God in your heart. You got to ask yourselves these questions. Like, why are you studying? Why do you study? Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying don't study and go, like, quit, but, like, why are you studying? Many of us, it's to get those specs, to get hired, to build that career, get married, have kids, watch them do the same thing, watch them watch their kids do the same thing, you know, and retire and get old. And our lives pass us, and then we find that our lives were just lived comfortably, and it wasn't necessarily unto the Lord. So many get sucked into this false promise of living a selfish and comfortable life. Again, I'm not saying that these are bad things. Family, kids, careers are good things. But if they become ultimate things, they become destructive. Now, I think something that we have to wrestle with is this. What if God takes it away? I mean, let's be real. Just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're somehow shielded from any bad thing ever happening to you ever. God could very easily take away your job security. Things could, anything could happen. If God wants to test you, and he has tested people, look in the Bible, he tested Job. He was an upright man. What, what then? Like, will you blame God, or will you just say, I don't believe in you anymore? Like, what is your source of blessing? Is it God or money? Who is your Lord? Now, this verse, <clears throat> we'll do a little bit of a, a study on this, too, uh, isn't just an isolated verse. Now, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, it just seems like these are all, like, topical things that you can just kind of look at. But actually, uh, chapter 6 is, ha- has a cohesiveness to it, okay? And it helps you kind of understand this. So we're, gonna, we're not going to read all of it, but I'm going to assume that you've already either read it or uh, if you haven't, you'll read it later. Uh, but in any case, if you look at these verses, if you look at the headings of them, it goes like this giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, treasures in heaven, that's our text, and the next part, do not worry. And this is really cool because this is going to give you a better framework and understanding of our text. Now, the first part, giving to the needy, is all about not announcing it with trumpets when you give and doing it in secret. Prayer, same thing. It's not about uh, showing yourself as this holy man, but really just praying in reality to God, in, in truth. Fasting, same thing. It's about doing it in secret. Uh, notice that with all of these, there is a common phrase. 
Okay? Verse 4, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 6, the second part of it says, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 18, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Repetition, repetition, that means look at me, look at me, right? In each of these examples, Jesus says that they have uh, received their reward in full. He says they have received their reward in full. In verse 2, to be honored by men. Verse 5, to be seen by men. Verse 16, to show men they are fasting. And now we get into the art text. To do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, including your honor and the way people see you, um, that you build up by being seen by other men. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which, by the way, uh, can you see them? I don't, I don't see them with my eyes. Can you see your treasures in heaven? I don't see them, but they're there. <laughs> you like literally looked. <laughs> um, yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's an interesting thing that the verb see, S-E-E, is used so often in this chapter. This chapter is all about being seen and seeing clearly and believing in God who is unseen, who sees what you do in secret. We live by faith, not by sight. The Pharisees did their acts of righteousness to be seen by men, not by God. The irony here is that these people of faith, faith in quotations, were not living by faith at all. They had much to gain by being seen as religious within their social circles. Are you seeing clearly? Are you seeing clearly? Who is your Lord? Money, honor, the praise of man, your own self-worth based on your worldly success? You cannot serve two masters. And it's so easy to get sucked in into your studies, your major, your school, job, career, family. And it may all seem very noble. And they are good things. Again, they are good things, but they are not ultimate things. And they may seem noble even. Like the Pharisees, their religion seemed noble to many people, but in their hearts, they were far from God. What is at your heart? Are you approaching these things as worship to God with the understanding that God is the one who gave you these things? Or do you trust that if you lose one of these things, that God will give you something better to steward? And by better, I don't mean more valuable or better by the eyes of the world. I mean better because God ordained it for you in this particular season. Okay, whatever God calls you to is the best thing you could be doing. You got to see from heaven's perspective. There's a quote that goes like this. If God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. I'll say that again. If God calls you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. When you understand that God is Lord, not money, your entire approach to life changes. There is suddenly no more fear about messing up because you know that God is the source. Okay, Not your honor, not your success, not your wealth. You will no longer work to please men, but work in response to who God is. Now all of this leads to the last part, do not worry, which is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, but that's another sermon, so we're not going to touch that today. But I do want to highlight one kind of last part. If you turn the page or look a little further on the page, depending on how your Bible is laid out, look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
So mostly throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that's chapters 5 to 7, there are two alternatives. It says, you have heard that it was said, but, it was said, but, you are the salt of the earth, but, you are the light of the world, but, and so on. And with each of these, there's a choice. There's like the way of the world and there's the way that Jesus is proffering. You can see that, I'm um, oh, sorry, and, and we, can, we have this metaphor, right, in verse uh, 24, to build a house on rock or sand. What is your house built on? Now, clearly in this case, the rock is God. And the sand is money. You can serve money in your own comforts and your life will come to a disappointing crash like that house built on sand. Or you can serve God and build in eternity. Invest in eternity. Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Is it in God or in money? Now look at the last part of chapter 6. It says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? We can trust in God. God calls us his own treasure. Uh, I preached on this last semester, but in Matthew 13 it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. God gave it all for us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God is a good father. We sing about that. He's a good, good father, right? God counted the cost and paid it all on our behalf. If you believe this, you'll have to come to terms with this. What are you building your life on? What you lay down to God will not go unnoticed. He could even use it to bless others, 30, 60, 100 fold, like that uh, parable of the sower. You know, sometimes we wonder if there's any point at all in doing church, in doing ministry. I'm sure we've all come across that. Um, And you know, having done ministry for a while, having been in Emmaus for several seasons, I've seen how different people respond uh, to the ministry. You sow, you sow, you sow. You see some spring up in in the dirt. You see some get eaten up by birds. You see some go in the rock. Um, You know, church, church has been hard these days. You know, uh, for those of us who's, who've been going to New Philly, who've been coming out to Emmaus, Emmaus is a little bit shielded, but, you know, there's just a lot of rocky things going on. And sometimes you wonder if anything we did amounted to anything. All those years of so-called glory years, and then here we are. It's like a lot of people gone, uh, just a bunch of remnants. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, I like, you know, I love New Philly. I love Emmaus, you know? It's not like a drag to be here, you know? I really love being here and and pouring into you guys. But, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, does the words I speak produce any fruit? Are these seeds going anywhere? Like, why don't we see more numbers? Not that that's the measure of success, but, like, what's going on? But strangely enough, God brings people, the most random people in the most random ways, you know? Like, I think all of you have just a very different way of coming here. It's not like we just, all of you saw a flyer, you know? It's really interesting. Um, but, you know, God, I think he's, he walks with us. And that's the cool thing is that um, 
as much as I, I serve and I pour out and I sow, um, you know, God, in the right timing, just brings encouragement. You know, last night I met with a former Emmaus student who's visiting, and we just got to share and encourage. I hadn't spoken to him in a few years, but like, man, it was so good to hear. There was someone who like I sowed into, and it's like growing. It's like, wow, there's real fruit. Like, this stuff works. <laughs> you know? And you know what's really cool is right now he's at Yonsei testifying. Yeah, it's really cool. And so, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Therefore, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I was reminded of that last night. Now, again, that doesn't mean you have to go into ministry. The work of the Lord for you may be school. It may be family. It may be school in one season. It may be family in another season. That's okay. Most people, it's like that. It's fine. Whatever it is, whatever the case, in whatever season you are in, make sure you do it unto the Lord and make sure that the Lord is number one in your life. That's really the important thing, the message, the take-home message of all of this. I want to bring up another verse. Mark 10, 29, it says, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or field for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, in parentheses, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, end parentheses, and in the age to come, eternal life. God sees what you give up. God sees your heart. You know, and, and as it says, we don't just receive heaven. Uh, we, we don't receive just in heaven. It says here, uh, as much in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. So this verse is saying, look, you, you're not going to just receive only in heaven. It's not like you do all these things and then like you die, you never see any of your fruit ever, ever, ever. You will see fruit. You will see the joys. And, you know, it may not be that literal meaning like you will see your fruit in the sense that like if you sow into this person, you will see fruit in that person. And I don't think that's necessarily what it, this is talking about. Yes, God may in the right season bring people to encourage you. Yes, like that happened to me yesterday. But that's not what this verse is talking about in its most uh, meaningful way. I think what it's really talking about is um, that you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. If you truly understand who God is, if you're seeing clearly, then you will understand the great worth of the treasure that was given to you. Remember the parable of the hidden treasure? God bought that field. He bought you at a price. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross as a payment for our sins so that we could be with him. If we have this, then yes, we've already received a hundredfold or more of anything we could possibly give up to God. We have our sins paid for, a debt that we could never pay. And so if you are in the Lord, take this as encouragement. Like, I'm not trying to force you or, or pressure you to like serve in Emmaus or anything. What I really want is for you to understand that God is your source. Your circumstances, money, these things will not satisfy. They will fail. And if you put those things in the place of God, your life will turn chaotic. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, if we could just uh, 
bow our heads. Uh, we'll have a short time of response.